Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Sarah LaFleur. She's the founder and CEO of M.M. LaFleur. It's been around for many years now, a women's, you know, workwear brand, and also an alum of the Modern Retail Podcast before the Modern Retail Podcast was called the Modern Retail Podcast. It was when it was making marketing. I believe it was maybe a 2019 episode before my time, um, and I was listening to it to prepare for this because uh, the business has changed a lot since 2019, um, as I'm sure we're going to get into. I, I believe that uh, M.M. LaFleur is celebrating its 10-year anniversary, so congratulations for that. Um, and I know that you guys have some new store openings and some really interesting strategic changes on the horizon. I want to go into all of that. But Sarah, how are you doing? Thanks for joining. Doing well. It's, I think, our first actual snowy day in New York City. I know. So, Isn't that wild um, to wake thank up? Thank goodness for that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, it's wild. I woke up and was like, this is snow, and uh, I haven't seen snow at all this year, so it's it's kind of nice. I know. It's it's kind of a relief. I'm like, thank <laughs> gosh. There's, thank God there's actually snow still in New York City, so um, the world has not gone to hell quite yet, but um, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Big fan of modern retail and, and everything you guys do, so so happy to be here. Absolutely. So first, let's I always try to start at the beginning. I'm sure many of our listeners know M.M. Lafleur, but for those who don't, do you want to give the the abridged version of how it started 10 years ago, what you were doing then, and where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, I really, I founded M.M. Lafleur based on my own experience, finding it really difficult to find work-appropriate clothing. I mean, I'll, maybe it was as simple as that. I, myself, I do not come from the fashion world. Um, I do not have a design background. Um, I was actually working in management consulting and then and I did a brief stint in private equity. And, um, you know, I, I, you all, you have to dress a certain way. You have to be just a little more professional. Um, and it was really hard to find good quality, well-made, well-designed, um, and, and easy to care for. So machine washable clothing. And I, I, I thought, oh, someone should really do something about this. Um, and to make a long story short, I was in a job uh, where I felt absolutely miserable. I kind of left not knowing what I would do next um, and thought, you know what? I've, I've got no mortgage. I've got no kids. Um, why, don't I, why don't I take a shot and, and pursue this? So um, I actually met my co-founder, Miyako Nakamura, through a headhunter. Um, she is the design brain. Yeah, I know a lot of people... Um, can't believe it kills kills eyes are, are popping <laughs> no, out of his that. head because that, that's like... <laughs> a real corporate background finding a headhunter and then getting a co-founder. Yeah, you know, well, it's it's all, it's really because I didn't know anyone in the design world. Um, I you know, I went to a liberal arts school. Um, I, I really my world did not overlap with the fashion world at all, um, and yet you know I think about the job that I had. I was working in Times Square, and the fashion district is literally you know two blocks south of of Times Square. And, and really somehow our worlds did not overlap at all. And so um, when I decided I wanted to start this company, I, w- I was very set on having an experienced uh, designer, ideally from a, a high-end fashion background, because so much of what I wanted to do is bring that high-end fashion tailoring and fabrication and construction and, and taste level to um, to women uh, at a much more affordable price point, and, and so anyway, Miyako and I met through a headhunter. A lot of people think we we must have been friends from a, a long time back because she's she's Japanese, I'm half Japanese, and they think it must be the Japan connection. But actually, no, not at all. It was a good old New York headhunter um, who put us in touch. Wow, let's start a little bit 
going before because M.M. Fleur has been known for many things over the years. And when I was listening back to the very old episode, one of the things that you worked on was your bento boxes, uh, which was sort of, I think, like of the times, like very much a way that people found clothes was similar to this sort of subscription model. Um, have, how has that changed and how has the business model evolved specifically in the last year as as things have not gone back to normal but are different than they were, like, say, pre-2019, pre-2020? Sure. So, um, so the subscription model that you're referring to was really what I think, you know, led to so much of our growth, call it between the years of 20. 15 and 2018. And it was a very, I think, also unique time in the performance marketing space where there were all these, um, you know, Facebook advertising was so cheap um, (laughs) because most most advertisers had not quite caught on to it. Not anymore. Yeah, no, not anymore. But I, I remember there was a time where we used to acquire customers for, you know, $16 per customer. I mean, it was it was kind of crazy. And then very quickly, uh, I shouldn't say very quickly. I think there was about, you know, again, a three-year period of, of really sizable growth. I think the subscription model was very trendy. People were excited by it, wanting to try it. And we could also find customers who were interested in trying it for a very affordable price. And those dynamics started to evolve. And I think basically by mid to late 2018, it was becoming um, prohibitively expensive. I just couldn't find a way to to make it work um, and to make it profitable. And, you know, profitability was um, not not really something that uh, venture-backed companies were focused on chasing, especially back then. Um, but it, it was clear to uh, clear to us that like we we there was no way we were going to be able to grow this business um, in a in a profitable, scalable way. And so mid twenty nineteen, we actually we took a really hard look at our business and we said, you know, does it make sense for us to keep supporting the subscription model business? And we said, actually, you know, we don't think it does. Um, and I think there were a lot of things that were happening. I think when we, when the business first started, you know, again, our products are not cheap. You know, our dresses are roughly two hundred fifty to three hundred fifty dollars. And um, you know, to I think so much of what we were doing through that subscription model uh, when we first launched was telling first time customers who had never heard of us heard of us before, give us a try. Um, you just, you don't have to pay anything, you know, just give us your credit card information. We won't actually charge you until you decide to keep anything. And, and that really brought down the barrier that a lot of women felt and saying like, do I actually want to, you know, try, try a dress that, that I've never, you know, from a brand that I've never heard before. And, and so the subscription model really was game changing for us in, in getting our name out there. But I think by the time 2019 came along, our, our, we were, we were fairly known at that point. You know, I think there wasn't that kind of mm-hmm. resistance towards trying a new brand. Uh, and I think also so much about the e-commerce landscape changed. Like I think I remember when we launched, you know, it was kind of unthinkable to shop for expensive products online. And, you know, by 2019, people were buying $2,000 Pelotons, um, online, you know, sight unseen. And so, I think so many of those things actually led to us saying, okay, it's time to wind down the bento business and let's actually focus on selling our products, which was always our bread and butter through the two channels that that um, we were running profitably, which is our e-commerce channel um, and and our stores. Uh, so that that really was the evolution between 20, 
call it 2014 and 2019. Got it. Got it. I want to talk about 2022 specifically now, which I know we're jumping from 2019 to 2022. But I think 2022 is kind of the year when we're seeing a lot of businesses sort of level out in terms of what business models are because 2020 and 2021 were so tumultuous. For, and like you specifically, Memfler is really interesting because you're a workwear company, but then work sort of ceased to exist in the way that we knew it. And so I know that your assortment changed a lot or what people were wearing, what women were wearing were changed. And so can you talk about what specifically changed business model wise last year and how that is laddering up to what you're focusing on this year? Sure. Um, So COVID was really hard on the business. I mean, if you can imagine, uh, everyone says it's the Black Swan event, the Black Swan (laughs) event. I mean, if you could think of like the worst thing that could happen to a company that mainly sold clothing to women who were going to an office, <laughs> it really it was, it was COVID, you know? Yeah. So it was devastating for the business. I mean, just to give you a sense of it, 2020 was down 55% to 2019. And there were multiple times where I thought maybe we won't make it. Um, maybe, maybe the business, um, won't survive. And, you know, I mean, we, we really, by, by the skin of our teeth, we, we made it. Um, but, but it was a really difficult couple of years. Um, and I, I think thankfully knock on wood, we're on the other side now and, and growing again. Um, but uh, two things really happened that I think allowed us to survive. The first one is we were very, I think, unafraid to think about what dressing in the future might look like. I think we, you know, there was this existential moment where we were like, you know, what is the purpose of MM Lafleur if, if women aren't going to the office anymore? And I think the first three months of COVID, you know, we, we, we really doubted ourselves, but, but after a while, I, I started to hear from customers, Hey, you know, I, I'm having to present on zoom and I'm not quite sure what to wear or, um, you know, I changed jobs during the pandemic and I'm, I'm going to, I need to make a good first impression. You know, what should I wear? Or I put on a lot of weight during the pandemic and I'm really struggling with, with my new body size. How can I dress for it? And, and what really struck me is, okay, yes, the way we work might change, but I think the angst associated with dressing for your work environment that exists, whether you're working from home, you're, you're doing the hybrid thing, or you're actually back into the office or you've started a new job. And so I think really being able to identify with that first and foremost was, you know, it, it gave me, I think it, it, you know, put it plainly, it gave me the courage to keep going. It gave, gave us a reason for being, um, and then second of all, you know, my, my, uh, designer, uh, was really Miyako, my co-founder was really thoughtful in thinking about how women were going to be dressing going forward. And we coined the term power casual, which is, is the way we believe, you know, a lot of women are dressing today. It's, it's not business casual anymore. I think of business casual as really kind of like, you know, the pre pandemic way of dressing a lot of pencil skirts, um, you know, or, or, uh, dresses and, and now, uh, you know, if if business casual is no longer really the way people are dressing, it's not as though then people are wear, wearing sweatpants. There's something in between business casual and totally casual, and we we're we're calling this power casual, where um, you're signifying that you're you're 
you're ready for work and, and, uh, you're, you know, um, you're on top of it and you're presentable at the same time, you're not stiff. Um, so, uh, you know, what does the style look like? I think a lot of times people are wearing slacks that could be, you know, a nice pair of denim or, um, uh, you know, pants of, of various shapes. And then often some sort of knit top or a t-shirt and then a jacket on the top. I think the jacket has actually become a really, really important, um, piece of this, this new outfit. Our jacket sales have actually doubled since the start of the pandemic. And, and it's, it's really been, yeah, that, that actually caught me by surprise. I thought suiting sales would just kind of fall off, but, uh, suiting sales have actually really rebounded. Jacket sales have doubled and actually dress sales have declined, um, in return. And, and so you, you, you see the shift happening. Um, but I think really being able to identify power casual as the way forward was, was crucial for our business and, and really allowed us to, to put a new, uh, point of view forward. So do you think power casual was sort of the, the, the transition that was needed to get back to where we are now, or is business casual just uh, as as we knew it before officially dead? You said that dresses are down. Do you think dresses are going to continue to be down? So, you know, dress sales, if you think about dresses, and when I talk to other people who are in the space, I think dresses for going out, so whether that's events or weddings or, you know, some sort of special occasion, I think those dress sales are booming and will continue to do well. The dresses that we typically think of as, as, you know, quote unquote work dresses, so shift dresses, um, the, the demand for that has definitely gotten smaller. And, um, I, I, I don't think, I don't think it's that they're going to disappear entirely, but it's clear that, that more women, more of our customers are favoring pants over skirts and dresses now. And I think that actually, it makes so much sense. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just going to speak for myself right now, but I have this, you know, I, right now we're in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I, I'm working from home Monday and Friday, but that doesn't mean, you know, I'm not seeing people on Monday through Friday. Sometimes I'll go have a, a lunch with a colleague or a, a business contact. And, but in the morning I'm dropping my kids off at, uh, at, at nursery school. Right. And so that's just so much easier if I'm in my pants. And then as soon as I want to step out for lunch or if I have a business meeting, then I'll throw on my jacket. And suddenly I don't have to actually change out of my outfit during the day. It's the outfit that allows me to be a mom during the morning, go do my, you know, go do my work. And then when I come home, I just take the jacket off and I'm I'm kind of back in mom mode. So I think this flexibility that hybrid work has given us has really also impacted the way we're dressing right now. Um, it doesn't mean that women are, you know, wearing sweatpants all day, you know, quite the opposite. But I think skirts and dresses are actually just not as suited for this hybrid lifestyle. Has this shifted AOV, like on the business level? Are people buying different type, less, you know, uh, a piece that might be less expensive than a dress was? Or how are you seeing this in terms of how it's shaking out with what people are buying? You know, strangely enough, our AOV has actually gone up. And and part of it, you know, candidly, is that we did take up prices at the end of 2021. Um, I saw some of it was, you know, caused by supply chain woes. And of course, the material costs have gone up. Um, so on the whole, our AOV has gone up. And I, I think actually even units per transaction has also gone up. Um, I think a lot of people are refreshing their wardrobe right now. Again, I'm speaking for myself, but I definitely put on weight during the pandemic. And, you know, for, 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 I think the first six months I was like, I'm just going to squeeze myself back into these pants. (laughs) 
And then at some point I was like, well, I mean, why am I torturing myself? I'm so miserable at the end of the day, you know, having to like unfasten my, my button. And there's like kind of nothing more defeating than, than having to unbuckle your, your, your jeans, uh, during a meeting. So at some point I threw in the towel and I said, I'm just actually going to buy my new size. Um, and we've definitely seen that with our customers, you know, people are coming in saying, I, I need a wardrobe refresh somehow. Some the things they have in their closet, uh, don't feel like an accurate reflection of who they are anymore. Um, whether stylistically or size wise. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. You said that you're back in growth mode. Congrats. That's really great that the business is growing again after the the, the crazy few years we've <laughs> Thank had. Thank you. Where yeah. where like where are the nodes of growth? Has it changed? Like is is it st- both e-com and stores at the same rate that they were before? Sort of where are you seeing the business layout now and where are you putting your focus on? Yeah, it, it's um it, it really is both and I I'll start by saying e-com is you know, 90% of our business, it's still the, a huge, huge part of our business. Um, but retail, I, I, you know, I see a ton of opportunity. And so uh, in terms of where I'm, I'm putting my, my energy right now, I am really focused on, um, making sure that the stores we have right now are performing well, which, you know, thankfully they are. I think one thing that we, um, kind of stumbled upon, we, we have these showrooms rather than, stores. And we actually did open our first ground floor location on the Upper East Side, which um, is, has been wonderful. But uh, the, the showrooms, uh, you know, we have um, one right now in Bryant Park in New York and then one in D.C. Those have always been profitable endeavors for us. And, and so we're going to continue to expand on those. Um, and then we're focused on also opening more ground floor uh, retail. So um, we just opened a store on the Upper East Side. We're about to open one on the Upper West Side and we're looking to open um uh, at least two more stores, um, for the rest of this year. Um, so, you know, I, retail, I, I continue to very much believe in, I think it's also great brand marketing. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I'm hoping that, that some part of our growth will come from that. Uh, but there's also, you know, I mean, e-com is, is so powerful. Um, and I think the exciting thing with e-com is just how much uh, the simple things, the simple tweaks that you can do on the UX front can really shift those metrics that you were talking about, you know, whether that's, you know, units per transaction or conversion rate or checkout. Um, so my, I have an amazing team who's constantly looking at those numbers and, and trying to optimize them. And um, of course, you know, the hope is that some of the growth is organic, that there's, you know, more increased traffic and increased conversion. But uh, I think the exciting thing about e-com is, is the smart tweaks that you make to your site can really contribute to your revenue growth. And, and we're definitely seeing that. Like, can you give an example of a smart tweak that you've made recently that had an outsized impact or a surprising impact? Sure. Um, maybe the, actually, I mean, it's probably a pretty simple one, but um, we reroute new customers and returning customers to a different, uh, a different experience, a different landing page. We know that new customers prefer certain products over others. Returning customers are more interested in, in, in new products and collection products and, and being able to actually just offer different, uh, web, web page experiences to different types of customers has actually really lifted our conversion in AOV. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're actually working on doing a lot of research at MR about like what the overall e-com and checkout experience is like. And so this is interesting just in terms of like how people are 
seeing the assortment on the page. So I might come back to you about that. Sure. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, Can you talk about the ground floor? Because you just opened, when did the Upper East Side one open? Opened in October. Yeah, so it's only a few months old. What made you decide to to go in a different direction than the traditional showrooms that you've been doing? I think, you know, initially, again, this we're just celebrating our 10 year anniversary. We always thought of, you know, the subscription box as the acquisition model, the acquisition channel, excuse me. And then we would, then our customers would, uh, find themselves in either our showrooms or our, uh, e-com channel shopping for themselves. And so that, that's how customers were being pathed. And I think with the the change in performance marketing and, and realizing, you know, just subscription was no longer working as an acquisition channel, I'm uh, the, the thought really there is let's let's shift our acquisition channel to now be um, from something else. And it, our store is a, a, a source of acquisition and it actually it absolutely has been. So rather than thinking of showrooms and, and retail as a retention channel, we're now playing around with it also being an acquisition channel. Again, this is nothing new, um, right? And, and retailers have been doing this for yeah, centuries, truly. but I think, I think the, tr- right. And, but, but the trick with marketing and, and w- is that I think every, I don't even want to say every decade, call it every five years. I feel like that's the cycle we're in right now. Um, marketing dollars shift. And I think the trick with marketing is to always find the, the most efficient channel. And so, you know, I mean, seven years ago, Facebook was incredibly efficient. And now, ironically, brick and mortar is more efficient, um, especially in the post-pandemic times when uh, landlords are more willing to make compromises to, to, uh, get good brands into their storefronts. And so we just actually see more pockets of opportunity in retail right now. It doesn't mean that this is like the silver bullet strategy five years from now. Again, it may shift. Um, but right now we're, we're really seeing pockets of opportunity in retail. Uh, and, and we're, we're finding that it is a, a way more efficient way for us to acquire customers um, than a lot of the other channels that we used to rely on in 2017, 2018. That makes sense. Can you talk a little about the metrics of success and how they change between the showroom and the and the actual retail store? Because I imagine a retail store is probably a little bit more expensive. You have more, do you have more clo- things on the floor, maybe more people, and it's also probably a more expensive retail footprint because it's you know, front and center in the Upper East Side. So like, wh- what what are you thinking about in terms of how it's working? Do they have to be profitable as they are? But are you looking into other metrics that are showing that it is a good acquisition channel, even if it is losing a little bit of money? New York is probably a slightly different market from every other city out there. Um, and I should qualify that. I'm sure there are, you know, pockets of other cities where real estate is is incredibly expensive. But New York really, you know, takes the cake in terms of, of real estate prices. So my goal with the New York uh, city stores is really to get them to break even um, and and then profitable. That that's that's always the goal. Um, I'm not really into the idea of having kind of flagship stores that you know drain um, cash. <laughs> it's, it's not really you know. I, I know I know that's a strategy that some brands like to pursue. It's just it's not mine. Um, but uh, the the metrics that we do care about, um, I, I, I really care about traffic. Uh, there's there is 
something to be said about people having more confidence in brands that have retail storefronts. And I, I will tell you, when we put up a sign saying that we were opening a store on the Upper East Side, I had more people texting me photos of um, our storefront saying coming soon, you know, MM LaFleur than probably any other brand marketing campaign that we had ever done. And I really saw the power of gosh, opening a store and, and people get so excited about it and celebrate it in a way that, uh, you know, just no other brand, brand marketing campaign seems to, um, be able to do so that, that is, that is really, really powerful. Um, and so that, that obviously I, I care about tremendously, um, our products are not cheap. And so what I do also care about is traffic. I just want customers to come inside and touch and feel the fabric and really understand why our products cost what they do. Um, and to be able to see the quality of the tailoring and to even try it on and, and, uh, for size. And ultimately, of course, I would love it if they purchased something there, but if they go on to make a purchase online afterwards, then that is, that is also good. And, and we can measure that, you know, very tangibly. And we have seen, uh, a, a noticeable lift, uh, from customers who live in, in that area where we opened our store, uh, in terms of their online purchases. And so, uh, I, I definitely think it, it, you know, it's the, um, the, the tides lifting all boats. Um, we definitely see that happening uh, as a result of opening that store. Got it. That's great. Can you talk a little about uh, how you're, you mentioned that there's going to be an Upper West Side one soon um, and you're thinking about opening a couple more. How are you thinking of geographies? I imagine the Upper East Side is where a lot of MM Lafleur customers already exist. And so there's a lot of excitement with that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but are you thinking about these other stores in terms of new acquisition of people? You know, are you, are, are you looking into nodes where you already have a bunch of active customers or are you trying to do it in a place where you want to lift your customer numbers? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer is somewhere in between. Uh, look, I, I would love it if our, our, you know, VIP customers also decide to shop out of our stores, but uh, I, you know, that's not really why I'm opening the store. Um, and at the same time, if, if we went into a market that had, uh, no idea who we were, it would just be a very expensive proposition. And, and so I'm really looking for something in the middle. I, I ideally, you know, in, um, ideally if we were to open a store, it would be in a market where people have maybe heard about us a couple of times, but haven't been quite ready to pull the trigger. And, um, they're, they're, they're kind of waiting, uh, for the right moment. And so this store really is, serves as the impetus for them saying, huh, okay, maybe, maybe I will finally give it a try or, huh, I didn't know they opened a store. Like maybe I'll go inside and finally take a peek. Um, that's really, I think the, the places that are ripe for opening a store. And so, um, you know, New York, I, I think the thing we forget about New York is it's 8 million people with a ton of disposable income. And there is so much business to be had just in New York city. Of course, it's incredibly competitive as a result, but, um, I know that there are so many more customers that we could be acquiring in New York. Um, I think we're, we're just at the tip of the iceberg right now. And so, um, we're, we're really focused on expanding even more in New York and making sure that every single woman, um, who is a potential customer really knows what we're about and understands the, the quality of our product and, and our, and our brand. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. You, we keep touching on this, and I wanted to go m deeper into this but, uh, before we run out of time. But, you know, we're in a new 
a new paradigm with digital marketing. You guys were kind of early pioneers with digital marketing, or at least marketing that many high-end brands know. So, you know, you mentioned Facebook, which was a great way to acquire customers. I also remember you guys in... I want to say 2018 as being a really big subway brand, you know, a brand that I would see on yeah. the subways. What, 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 how are you thinking about th- these types of marketing now? Uh, has it shifted? Are you like, you know, how, you know, with Facebook more more expensive, it still is a way to acquire customers. Are you still using Facebook the same way that you were? What are you thinking in terms of the marketing mix and what has changed and what are you taking your foot off the gas of? Sure. I mean, I think you can say we've def- definitely taken our foot off the the Facebook gas. Um, it's I think at you know one point it was probably eighty percent of our performance marketing spend, and now it's I don't know maybe less than twenty percent. Uh, don't quote me on that. I should really check with my, my <laughs> head of marketing. But but it's it's you know it's not it's it's still meaningful, but significantly less and. I mean, we were seeing this trend even in 2017, 2018. It really, it gave me, um, you know, it, 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 it just kind of gave me heart palpitations knowing how much of our money was, was being spent on one marketing channel. We've diversified significantly since then. I, I would tell you we probably have five or six kind of channels that regularly feed us um, customers. And it's not, it's not that Facebook and, you know, Instagram don't have a role to play in that, you know, Google also, you know, it's not that they don't have a role to play in it. They, they play very important roles. We're just always trying to make sure that we've got our tentacles elsewhere as well. Got it. Got it. Uh, what, like, let's, before we run out of time, talk about sort of your plans in terms of growth for this year. Are stores the number one emphasis? What are you thinking about and where, you know, are, are, are there going to be new and what new marketing channels are you thinking about launching in our new marketing campaigns? Yes. So stores are absolutely an essential part of our, our marketing strategy. Um, and, uh, I, I think I, I go back to, okay, what makes NM special? And it's really the community of women that I think are behind the brand. And so, you know, just to kind of give you an example, like our customers are, our VIP customers are, are really, really loyal to the brand. Um, you know, Kelly, you even mentioned in the beginning, like we have this, uh, we have a customer Slack channel where customers are always talking to each other about new products that we have, new launches we have, but also things that are totally unrelated. You know, what are they struggling with right now at at work? Um, What is it like being a working mom, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's this really like vibrant community that exists. And I think that is our special sauce. And so really leaning into that. We're going to turn back to events and in-person events where, you know, I'm, I'm, I love getting our customers together for VIP dinners. We used to do that a lot before the pandemic and and we're going to start doing them again. And I think stores are really just an excuse for us to bring that community together. Um, we recently ran a survey with our top 1000 customers and we said, you know, what could we do for you as a brand? And the number one answer we got was that they really just wanted to spend more time with each other. (laughs) So we were like, great, you know, like that doesn't, you know, we're, we're happy to provide wine and and win a cheese plate. Like that's really (laughs) easy for us to organize. Um, but I, I, I think harnessing, you know, that connectivity among, um, our customers is one way of us keeping them loyal and hopefully hopefully bringing new people into the fold. Um, and I think that goes back to kind of maybe the most important point is like, 
yes, there are all these channels and, and, you know, formulas that you can lean into, but I think you, each brand really has to find like the thing that makes them different because that's usually where, that's usually what's most exciting about the brand. And ultimately that's usually where the efficiency is. Um, and I think for us, you know, we find our community to be the most powerful source of our brand. Got it. Well, Sarah, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you joining. Thank you so much, Kale. Best of luck to the modern retail team. Oh, thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. Bye.